Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, your regular venture into those tales of true crime that from my spare room in North Wales, I've sought out and given my own spin to, tales that may boggle your minds, they may make your hair stand on end, from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title, the hairy sleeping negative Pixie is lurking about here as ever, and both of us are welcoming you folks, the very kind and wonderful enthusiasts that make the show so worthwhile to do. It's fabulous to have you join us today, which I thank you so kindly for doing so. Now don't take offence, but the cat isn't really arsed, like. And I do hope that as you have done, then the episode finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. Right then, we are pretty much just over a week away from myself, Adam from UK True Crime, and Mike from Murder Mile, collectively known as The Sporran, I shall leave you to ponder why, from our live show in London, How to Plan the Perfect Murder, and totally balls it up. We're raring to go like the professionals that we are. Yeah, right. But it promises to be an evening of fun and laughter anyway. A bit of true crime talking as well. There is a link in the episode show notes to get some while there are some left. And if you miss out, don't worry, because new dates are being added soon. I'm just in the negotiating stage for venues right now. And I think I've found somewhere fabulous. Big thanks also heading out to both my returning and new Patreon supporters as well this time around, with shout-outs here for Jane Kingston, Lakvir Chumba, Charlotte Schooley and Christine Halpin, plus Josie Miller, Andrea Lindenberg, Meg Ebner, Anne Cunningham and Nicole Devaney, who have each opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there. Thank you so much all, I'd shake your hands and give you a big hug each if I could do, because your kind support does mean the absolute world to me. Each of you show supporters rule, you really do. I've loaded up the postie and there is some stuff heading out to some of you, bit of show swag, but you all have access to the 36 unreleased full-length bonus episodes that being a supporter of the show gets you. I'm talking the tales behind episodes such as Angel from Hell, Strange Tales from the South, Mr. Whiskers, The Butcher of Cumdy, or the latest offering, Send in the Clowns, to name just some of those that are on offer, and I do do a fresh tale each month. Now if these titles intrigue you, or you want a shiny bit of show swag, then to become a supporter is simpler and easier than a Love Islander, and you can become one quicker than Rebecca Vardy can delete a WhatsApp conversation. Just head over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there. Always remember that podcast suffix. Or you can just use the link that is ever-present in the episode show notes and boom, you'll be away. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, for our tale, we head back to the beginning of the 1990s and to the UK county of Hampshire, to the town of Farnborough, where I bring you a story that may be a bit more familiar than those we usually have here on The Enthusiast, but one that is no less shocking, and bearing the context of the events you'll hear in mind, is quite an unbelievable and terrifying one. If, as it unfolds, it is one that you know of, then I'm sure you'll agree. If it's not familiar with you, then I'm sure come the tale's end you'll think, just imagine if that person hadn't been locked away when they were. What kind of carnage would we be talking about then? It doesn't really bear thinking about. 
The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events, including descriptions of injury detail, physical abuse, and references to animal cruelty that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in or. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for an episode that I've entitled Daughter of the Devil. The town of Farnborough in Hampshire is today more widely known for its association with aviation. It's got its own airport, it has a biannual air show, which over the years has seen the debut of several famous aircraft, including the Eurofighter, the Vickers VC-10 and Concorde, and in 1958, a still-standing world record was set there when the RAF's aerobatic demonstration team, the Black Arrows, executed a 22-plane formation loop. I was based fairly near to Farnborough for a number of years at the end of the 90s and the start of the noughties, and I seem to remember it being perhaps not the choice of place to go for a night out, but a half-decent place to go shopping. There used to be a great market near there, Blackbush Market. Otherwise, all I could find of note about it was that Anne Robinson, she of the Wink and the Weakest Link, went to school there, and French Emperor Napoleon III, his wife Empress Eugenie, and his son, Louis Napoleon, are entombed in the crypt of St. Michael's Abbey there. Scraping the barrel a bit this time around. Back in 1992, the nearby town of Camberley, close to the borders of the UK counties Hampshire and Berkshire, was one of the choice nights out for an 18-year-old woman who had the world at her feet, trainee hairdresser Katie Ratcliffe. A popular, outgoing and attractive girl, Katie lived with her parents, Joe and Helen, and her older sister Joanne, in a mock Tudor house in Fir Avenue in the village of Hawley, adjacent to the Hampshire suburb of Cove. Her parents had brought her up with the ethic to work hard at her studies, and consequently, both she and Joanne had been educated at nearby all-girls Hawley Place School. So when Katie left there in 1990, aged 16, and adopted not to further her education, but instead making inroads to follow her dream of becoming a hairdresser, with one day owning her own beauty salon, her parents weren't best pleased, to say the least considering it a waste of her private education, and this had become a serious bone of contention between them, leading to several arguments. Undeterred by this, the headstrong Katie had found herself and had been accepted as a trainee at age 16 at the former Bumbles 2 hair salon in Frimley High Street, immediately impressing the manager, Alison Glover, with her enthusiasm and her willingness to learn. In the two years that she'd worked there, Katie developed many friends at the salon and seemed very happy to learn and grow into the role on the job, the aspirations to one day having her own salon driving her forward. Now, as I said a moment ago, this had led to several clashes with her parents. Show me a teenager who doesn't row with their folks and rebel somewhat ever, I ask you. And in May 1992, the headstrong Katie had off the back of one such argument packed some things and gone to stay at the home of her best friend Michelle Fisher, who lived nearby, to give both her and her parents some breathing space and to diffuse tension somewhat. Katie's mood wasn't helped at this time and she was reportedly extra sensitive and somewhat down, all because of a relationship she'd been in with 24-year-old factory worker named Metin Mustafa, 
that had ended at the end of the previous year and that Katie was struggling to accept had ended. Her many friends tried their best to cheer her up, ensuring that they always had at least one night out a week to let their hair down, which was usually on a Saturday night, and Saturday the 6th of June 1992 was no exception. That evening, whilst getting ready at Michelle's house, to a backdrop of Christ knows what music 18-year-old girls liked in the early 90s, apart from the obvious hitters, it would be shite like B.B. Mac or Dr. Alban or some bollocks like that, Katie and Michelle had decided to meet some friends and spend the evening at the former Ragamuffins nightclub in a shopping precinct in Camberley, where sure enough, shortly before 9pm, Katie and Michelle had arrived at. The nightclub, which closed its doors for good in 1995, was a favourite and regular haunt of Katie and her friends, and shortly after they'd arrived, Katie and Michelle were on the dance floor chucking shape after shape to the banging tunes of the time, and were indeed having a good night. That evening, they were just a couple of the 516 clubbers who were packed into ragamuffins that Saturday. But perhaps Katie's night began to take a downturn when an hour or so after arriving there, she spotted Metin as one of the clubbers. Straight away making a beeline for him, he then became the sole focus of her night, with Katie spending the remainder of her evening desperately trying to rekindle their relationship, even suggesting to him that she wanted to marry him. However, Metin told Katie, not unkindly, but firmly, that their relationship was over, telling her that he'd begun seeing somebody else. Now, for someone who was cut up about the loss of the relationship as it was, combined with the several drinks that Katie had had through the night, she became more and more upset. As happens, whenever you're in a nightclub and you've had a few drinks, you do wander off from your friends for a period, which, well, at least I seem to remember doing, though I've not been to one since God's dog was a puppy. And sure enough, Katie and her friends had become separated. Though Michelle was later to claim that she and the group had waited and waited for Katie, they had eventually left for home when they couldn't find her, them assuming that she'd left the club with Metin and had gone home with him. Now, Metin had left the club, but he hadn't left with Katie. She was still there, but now by herself, when the music finished playing and it was kicking out time at about 2am. Being one of the stragglers that always takes ages leaving, Katie found herself, somewhat drunk and upset, wandering about in the precinct. In fact, she was one of the last people to leave there. A security officer on duty at the shopping precinct spotted her on CCTV near to the doors and headed out to remind her that she needed to leave because they needed to lock up. He later recalled the young woman being clearly upset and asking him, where's Metin? To which he couldn't answer, but seeing that she was upset, he acquiesced when she asked him for a cigarette and as he locked the doors behind her, he watched as Katie took two or three steps outside before stopping to loiter once again. However, by then the doors were locked, all persons who should be on the other side of them were, and the security officer thought no more of this, clocking the time as he'd locked up and begun to do his rounds as being 2.30am. However, once Katie moved out of the sight of the doors, she bumped into some acquaintances outside the precinct, who asked her how she was and whether she was okay seeing the obvious distress she was in. One of these who knew her, Philip Williams, recalled later that she had asked him where Metin was, to which he replied he didn't know, 
but assumed that he'd left the club with Katie at the same time and had merely walked off ahead of her, therefore thinking no more of it as he watched the young woman, dressed in an ankle boots, white top, navy slacks and blue jacket, wander off in the opposite direction. This was the last time Katie was seen by anyone except her killer. Skip forward now just over five hours and to the town of Farnborough, some three miles away. Four youths who'd been camping out for the night in the garden of one of them, in the town's High View Road, had at about 3.30am that morning heard a piercing scream coming from the direction of Victoria and Station Road, only a few hundred yards away, but hadn't been too anxious to see what was going on. However, by 8am, after a largely sleepless night, They'd ventured out and were heading along Station Road, when midway along there, opposite the Victoria Road Cemetery, they made a horrific discovery. Lying within the rear driveway of Number 2A Highview Road, which backed onto Station Road, was the heavily blood-stained body of a young woman, not much older than themselves. Her clothing was in some disarray, her trousers and underwear by her ankles, and a white crop top was stained crimson, so much blood had she lost, though of the blue jacket she'd worn, there was no sign. Sadly, Katie Ratcliffe hadn't made it home that evening. Scared beyond belief, as you would be at such a young age finding someone clearly dead, the boys had hastily headed back to the home of the nearest one, from where only moments later, Emergency services were making their way to the scene. As a murder investigation began, spearheaded by Detective Superintendent Ray Piper, for one look at the body was enough to determine that this had been no accident. House-to-house -house inquiries in the area got underway, whilst the body was photographed in situ and then the scene sealed off, with the body being removed to Frimley Green Hospital for post-mortem. The post-mortem was to reveal that Katie, it was only shortly after discovery identified as being her when a worried Michelle had reported her missing when she didn't arrive home that morning, had been stabbed to death in a frenzied attack that led detectives to believe they were looking for a maniac. The examination found that Katie had been stabbed no less than 32 times in the heart, lungs and liver with a blade six and a half inches long and three quarters of an inch in width, over what must have been a substantial amount of time, evidenced by the mixture of superficial and deeper cuts and stab wounds to Katie. Some of the wounds had been inflicted with such force and frenzy that the blade had even passed cleanly through her body, and although there was later found to be no evidence of a sexual assault to her, Officers were clearly of the opinion that this was a sex crime, for Katie had been stabbed repeatedly to her genitalia, the knife being forced inside both her vagina and her anus to mutilate her, as well as being stabbed multiple times in the breasts. Some of the injuries, in fact the majority of them, had been inflicted after Katie's death. Beggar's belief, doesn't it? What do you say? to horror such as that. Now, a search of the area revealed a large pool of blood some distance away from where Katie's body lay, which led police to ascertain that she had been attacked and killed some distance from where her body was found. 
and her killer had taken the time to move Katie to where she was discovered, leading police to believe that they were seeking a strongly built male. Dr. David Holmes, a criminal psychologist, said when discussing the case years later, For the investigating police, Katie's death was one of mystery. However, the primary evidence, the frenzied attack, the sexuality of the attack, would point to a male, perhaps a male in their 30s. It would point to someone who is physically capable of dragging Katie from one killing location to a final resting place. Very fair assumption that, isn't it? The following day, Katie's shattered family, her father Joseph and her mother Helen, appeared at a press conference where, barely able to control his emotions, Mr. Ratcliffe said, We are numbed, just numbed, by the senseless killing of our daughter. Katie was a lovable person with a zest for life. Please, can anyone with any information contact police? Now every single time I write and broadcast words such as that, and it is a common thing to write throughout the show episodes, but I always each time try and put myself in the family's shoes when I do, and I just cannot. I find it simply unimaginable what that must be like. It must just shatter you. Poor, poor people is all I can say. Katie's best friend Michelle, meanwhile, was said to be inconsolable, along with the other friends Katie had been out with that Saturday. It taken them considerable time to come to terms with her death. Also overcome with a sense of what if, perhaps even a misplaced sense of guilt, was Katie's ex-boyfriend Metin. He had rapidly become a person of interest to police due to his past relationship with Katie, but was equally as quickly ruled out of the investigation as a suspect when his movements after leaving the club could be vouched for and the human side of officers could see the genuine remorse he felt for the loss of someone who he cared deeply for. Later spoken to by the Daily Mirror newspaper, Metin was quoted as saying, Why would anybody want to hurt Katie anyway? She never argued or picked fights with people. She had loads of friends and was a bubbly girl, full of life and excited about her job. If only I had taken Katie home as she asked me to, she would be alive today. That will play on my conscience. It will haunt me for the rest of my life. It was very firmly considered to be a sex crime rather than a robbery gone wrong, although there were items of Katie's missing, including a blue jacket, a gold bracelet she was wearing that evening, and a gold pendant bearing the figures 1 and 8. Despite the lack of evidence of rape, they were the very focused and maniacal injuries to Katie's sex organs, and the fact that her body had been taken to a semi-secluded location. The police investigation theorised that Katie had to have gotten from Camberley to Farnborough in a vehicle. It was too much a distance to have walked, and wasn't where she was staying at the time, so she was likely to have been picked up in a car or a van. Taxi drivers operating in the area drew a blank when they were spoken to, None of them had picked up Katie, so that left police to consider. Had Katie known her killer and accepted a lift from him, or had it been someone she'd met at Ragamuffins that evening who had collected her, hoping for opportunistic sex with the attractive young woman and who had killed her in a fit of fury when she'd rejected their advances? A very dangerous man indeed, who needed to be caught quickly.
When the male acquaintances of Katie had been looked at and each ruled out of the investigation, police then focused on the clubbers who had been ragamuffins that Saturday evening, and their attention was soon focused on one person. A lone male, described as being of average build, in his early to late 20s, having medium-length blonde hair, dressed in black and wearing very distinctive black cowboy boots with silver toe caps, was reported by several people as having been in the club that evening. Now he stood out especially, not because he sounds a fashion assassin, but because he'd spent the entire evening in there by himself, just stood watching dancers on the dance floor and drinking the night away. And this individual was not one of the clubbers who had come forward. A photofit picture of the man was created and released, but he was never to come forward. The only other possible line of inquiry police had were two sightings of a blue transit van in the area at roughly around the time frame between Katie leaving Ragamuffins and the four youths hearing the piercing scream just a few hundred yards away from where they were camping. A few streets away from Ragamuffins, a man who was at home waiting up for his son to come home in the early hours of that Sunday morning, between 2.10 to 2.15am, told police during the subsequent house-to-house inquiries that he'd heard a vehicle pull up outside, and, thinking it was his son coming home, instead saw it was a blue Ford Transit van that had pulled up outside his house. The witness described that the driver of the van was a male aged between 20 and 30, distinctly remembering that the man had short cropped brown hair and a moustache, and that he appeared to be lost. He was only parked up there a short time before he drove off. Now about an hour later, at about 3.20am, a woman driving home from work through Farnborough, Roxanne Davidson, had pulled up at the traffic lights at the junction of Union Street and Prospect Road, just 200 yards from where Katie's body would be found less than five hours later and had noticed a blue transit van come from underneath the bridge on Prospect Road at high speed, which turned off and drove past her up Union Street in the direction she'd just come from. Such speed was the vehicle travelling at, that Roxanne had been unable to get either a full or partial registration number, or a description of the driver. These were to be the only two lines of inquiry that police were to develop in the investigation. An in-depth look at Katie's life provided nothing, no possible motive for a killing or no suspects. Katie wasn't found to have any enemies at all or wasn't involved in anything unlawful or illicit. She was nothing except a well-loved, well-liked young woman with a world at her feet whose death left an unfillable hole in the lives of so many. Nonetheless, the investigation was exhaustive. Out of the 516 clubbers who had been at Ragamuffins that Saturday, more than 95% of them were traced, spoken to, and eliminated. The Camberley and Farnborough areas were searched thoroughly for a discarded murder weapon, Katie's jacket and jewellery, but nothing was found, and extensive house-to-house inquiries in the areas revealed nothing except the two possible lines of inquiry that I mentioned before. No witnesses had seen anything, and only the four youths had heard a scream that was most likely Katie being attacked by her killer. The murder was even appealed on the September 1992 edition of Crime Watch UK, where a reconstruction of Katie's final evening was broadcast, 
and the lines of inquiry I mentioned previously were appealed by Detective Superintendent Dennis Bogard, as well as him stressing that a £10,000 reward was available for information leading to the arrest of Katie's killer. It all brought nothing. Police were left with the realisation that she'd fallen victim to that hardest of killers to catch, an opportunistic predator, a complete stranger to Katie. Now, by this time also, in fact, there'd been a much higher profile murder in the UK, less than six weeks after Katie's, and not a massive geographical stretch from where Katie had been killed that would rule out as being the work of the same killer, and that police did for a considerable time seriously consider to be linked. And that was the murder on Wimbledon Common on the 15th of July 1992 of Rachel Nickell, who was hacked to death in front of her toddler son, Alex. Now, if you're a relatively new listener to the show and you choose episodes to listen to in a random order and you haven't gotten to it yet, then I have covered Rachel's murder as part of a series arc a couple of years ago here on the show, the Maniac Arc. Her murder was just one of the truly horrendous crimes that her killer was responsible for. I won't recap them here because Maniac covers them extensively and it's still available in the show's back catalogue. What I can say though is that Katie's murder cannot be laid at the feet of Rachel's killer. Looking back it's easy to see why it could be considered as possibly linked but it wasn't him. No, the individual responsible for Katie's murder was someone that nobody in their wildest dreams could have imagined. We skip forward now two years, in fact exactly two years to the day of Katie's still unsolved murder. Tuesday the 7th of June 1994, and only a couple of miles away from the scene of the killing, to Collingwood College Comprehensive School on Kingston Road in Camberley. That afternoon, police and an ambulance were called to the school following an altercation between two pupils. Well, I say an altercation. One of the pupils, a 14-year-old girl named Sharon Carr, had stabbed another, a 13-year-old girl named Amory Clifford, in the back, puncturing her lung and seriously injuring her. Amory later told police that she'd been lured to the school bathroom by Carr, known as someone considered tough and not to cross, with the excuse of helping her look for a pound coin Carr claimed to have lost there the previous recess. Upon entering the bathroom with Anne-Marie, Carr quickly knocked her to the floor and, producing a penknife, proceeded to slide it underneath her body while smiling and laughing disturbingly, then standing over the girl and tossing the knife from one hand to the other, toying with her. The terrified Anne-Marie did manage to struggle to her feet and pass Carr, but as she was about to leave the bathroom, was then stabbed in the back, which caused her to fall to the floor screaming, her lungs severely damaged. Now, Amory was fortunately saved from further injury when a group of other girls entered the bathroom at that time, with Carr forcing her way through them to flee, and then finding the injured Amory sat on a toilet seat, covered in blood. As the alarm was immediately raised, Carr was heading out of the school gates, though she didn't flee too far, as she was only minutes later spotted back by them, talking to older children. A big smile on her face proud of what she'd done. 
Anne-Marie was fortunately to survive the attack and was able to testify against Carr, although this was largely unnecessary as, once Carr had been arrested, she freely admitted to police what she'd done, almost cheerfully. Charged with a count of wounding with intent, the clearly disturbed Carr was sent to a medical assessment centre, where, during her stay there, she proved to be a volatile patient and tried to strangle two separate members of staff at the centre earning herself a further two charges of actual bodily harm. In December 1994, Carr was convicted of these charges and sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure at a female young offenders institution, but proved to be such a troublesome inmate, regularly seriously attacking other female inmates, that by only six months after her conviction, Carr had been moved around several psychiatric units and so was transferred for a period to an all-boys unit at Acliff Secure Centre, it being deemed the best possible place for her. Shortly afterwards, in September 1995, she was transferred to Bullwood Hall Young Offenders Institution in Essex. Now, whilst incarcerated, and indeed when she'd been at large, Carr was a prolific diary keeper, where she used to record all of her exploits, her innermost thoughts and feelings, all of that, and of course, her secrets. Whilst never quite defining her sexuality within the pages, or to anyone, it became clear that Carr would forge strong attachments, infatuations is actually a better word, to various other female inmates, and would attack if her feelings were not reciprocated. She also, whilst at Bullwood Hall, developed what could be described as a crush on a 33-year-old married officer named Diane Sinney, and pretty soon, by the spring of 1996, the 14-year-old was confiding more and more in the older woman, perhaps in some misguided attempt to impress her with how tough she was, trying to appear more mature than her years. I say misguided, very misguided, because in trying to appear tough and to impress Diane, she began hinting about something terrible she'd done to, I quote, a random bird ages ago, years. Now these hints became stronger and stronger, filled with so much colour and detail, and even going so far as to mention the name Katie, that a concerned Diane Sinney mentioned details of this to Carr's probation officer, Sarah Bryden. Sure enough, Sarah soon noticed that Carr would share similar details with her, that she'd committed an extreme act of violence in the past against someone called Katie. Murder. Knowing how disturbed Carr was, Sarah was aghast. On one hand, the descriptions were too vivid, too rich and detailed to have been a pure work of fiction. On the other hand, if it was true, then she was just 16 years old then. If it had been ages ago, as she said, it would mean that Carr had committed murder before she was even a teenager. With these concerns raised, however, it was decided to monitor all of Carr's telephone conversations and outgoing letters, as well as examine her diaries and journals, and what was found within caused prison staff to contact police immediately. At the beginning of May 1996, the then 16-year-old Sharon Carr was arrested at Bullwood Hall by Hampshire detectives and subsequently questioned for a total of 27 hours, 
where she soon admitted that the disturbing contents of her diaries, which I shall come on to a bit later, were completely true. She cheerfully admitted to detectives that she had been the killer of Katie Ratcliffe almost four years before, when she had been just 12 years old. 12, and she cheerfully admitted it. Beyond belief that, isn't it? To prove that this wasn't just the fantasies of an adolescent, with a frightening level of coldness and lack of emotion, Carr admitted that she had repeatedly stabbed Katie and revealed where she had, graphically describing one unreleased injury in particular, as well as providing details about the crime that police had deliberately withheld, details of the items of jewellery Katie had had stolen. Carr even helped police to film a reconstruction of the murder, in which she sat in the back of a car and demonstrated how she had stabbed Katie, laughing and joking with officers as she did so. Detective Sergeant Paul Clements, who interviewed Carr extensively, recalled, It was almost as if she was in another world. What sticks in my mind about talking to her was the coldness. Most people that you interview show some feeling as to why they've done what they've done, but with her, there was a complete absence of emotion and reason. I've never been involved in an interview quite like it. On Thursday the 9th of May 1996, 16-year-old Sharon Carr was charged with the murder of Katie Ratcliffe and appeared before Aldershot magistrates the following day, where she was returned to Bullwood Hall to await trial for Katie's murder. In October of that year, she appeared at Winchester Crown Court for a 20-minute plea hearing although no plea was offered at this time, and a subsequent trial was scheduled to begin in February of the following year. So, what drives such a young girl to commit such horrific murder that she'd privately bragged about it, a crime that she would never have been arrested and charged for, for police were, up until May 1996, still hunting for a maniac that they believed was a man, not a 12-year-old girl. Sharon Louise Carr was born in Belize, the former British colony in Central America, on the 21st of December 1979, the eldest of two children born to a mother Maria, who was known as Molly, and an unnamed father. Now reports conflict somewhat here, some accounts have it that Carr did not know her biological father at all, some claim he was an American police officer, whilst others claim that he was a violent alcoholic who was abusive, and who soon abandoned his family. What can be ascertained is that he did leave pretty soon, and once he'd left, her mother Maria had two other children with another man, who also didn't hang around, and that Sharon and her family spent many years extremely poor, and she and her siblings lived with hunger and poverty on a daily basis. Now, Another stat that is consistent through research is that Sharon's mother was sometimes erratic and irrational in her behaviour, and whilst most children are nurtured and loved by adults in their lives, Sharon had the opposite treatment. Her mother had an explosive temper and would regularly apply violent punishments on her children, such as burning their bodies with cigarettes, and at least on one occasion, pouring pepper on her daughter's vagina as punishment. After such unpleasantness, Sharon's mum gave more priority to things in life like alcohol and men, 
but her final contender for being Mother of the Year was the fact that she was an ardent participant in the black magic art of voodoo, which can feature the ritualistic killing of animals, which Sharon was game on for. Her former husband, George Carr, said years later, She says she has definite powers. She reckoned that by reciting certain prayers at certain times and in certain places, she could do people harm. Sharon believed in it. Sharon had even once witnessed a neighbour in her native Belize being immolated. George continued, Sharon was always listening, watching and witnessing violence. If you're cruel to a child, that child grows up learning to be cruel. George had met Sharon and her family when he was a British soldier, a member of the Royal Army Medical Corps serving in Belize, and who began a relationship with her mother Molly. When he needed to return to England, the couple decided to marry and moved across with the children to Surrey, settling in the old Dean estate in Camberley. At that time, the family's living conditions improved a lot, and for the first time, Sharon was able to attend school. She quickly adapted to her new life, made several friends, joined the basketball team, she was even a form rep in her class, and at first, she did well in school. Her teachers considered her intelligent, a quick learner, and a polite and helpful good worker. But by the time she went to secondary school, however, Sharon's behaviour could change. She could go from being a good worker to becoming disruptive and attention-seeking in class. The former headteacher recalled, She was charming and lively. A lot of staff liked her and found her refreshing. But then one or two teachers found her a little difficult, even aggressive. She was excluded on a number of occasions for aggressive behaviour and once hit out on a member of staff who was on duty. By the age of 11, Sharon completely changed her good behaviour for aggressive and started hanging out with older friends who used drugs and committed crimes, them accepting the much younger girl due to her streetwise ways, and she basically ran wild. She would be out until all hours of the morning, getting up to all sorts of antisocial behaviour, which led to her being placed in and out of foster care several times. It was possibly a reaction to and an escape from an unhappy home life for her, for her mother's marriage had fairly soon degenerated into an aggressive and miserable one, punctuated with horrific violence, an example of which was told to the Daily Mail newspaper in 1997 by George Carr. George told how he had long since moved out and had decided to get a divorce, tired of the aggressiveness that he faced in the marriage. Desperate to end it, he had travelled to Camberley for a final confrontation with his wife, explaining, The second I was inside the house, Molly came up with this pot in her hand and poured boiling fat over me. It went over my head, my arms and my chest. She said nothing and she did nothing after it. Sharon, whilst watching this entire scene unfold, simply acted as if nothing had happened. Carr's mother was later given a suspended prison sentence at Guildford Crown Court for the attack on George Carr and ordered to undergo three years psychiatric treatment. Sounds a happy home indeed, doesn't it? Now, as her mother continued to practice voodooism and that as Sharon had grown up watching all this, 
her mother killing and beheading animals for ritualistic use without batting an eyelid, this in turn encouraged Sharon to display her own brand of cruelty to animals also. In fact, following her arrest for stabbing Anne-Marie, police discovered she had a long history of sadistic violence towards animals and countless unspeakable acts of cruelty that she freely admitted to. Carr owned up to stabbing several cats over the years, there were tales of her deep-frying hamsters, and she'd even once decapitated her neighbour's dog, Snoopy, with a spade. There are no words, are there? Horrific beyond belief. It made me give Peeksy an extra little cuddle, that did. Though, of course, he doesn't need it, like, but you still, you don't even want to imagine foulness such as that. Watch The Enthusiast at a later date, is all I can say. But you couldn't get more of a setup on paper for a killer if you tried, could you? But by age 12. Now, Carr gave police three different accounts of the night Katie had been killed, but in all of them, the central theme was that she had repeatedly stabbed her using a six and a half inch long twin bladed knife to kill the teenager and to then mutilate her body in an appalling and sadistic attack. In two of the versions, Carr said that she was driving that night with two older friends, two other boys, in a car at the time of the attack, both of whom she named, and that they'd spotted Katie on the street, who appeared to be drunk, and had offered her a ride, which the young woman had accepted. During the ride, Katie had realised that something bad was going to happen to her, so she managed to jump out of the moving car and run towards a park. But she was chased by car, knocked to the ground and then stabbed, before the body was moved to where Katie was found. In another version, Carr expanded on this and added that they'd engaged in sexual activity with Katie before killing her and dumping her body. And in another version, Carr told police that she felt jealous when her older friends had shown attention to 18-year-old Katie as they passed her on the street. So she jumped out of the car and confronted the older girl with a knife. By the time Carr was finished, Katie had been horrifically murdered. She would have liked to ask the two boys she'd been with to help her move the body, but they disappeared in their car once the knife was produced, leaving Carr with the heavy lifting. It was a hard task, but eventually Carr had pulled the now-deceased Katie out of sight into a driveway, before mutilating her further and then fleeing. Now, in each of these differing accounts, the constant themes were that Carr had admitted being the one who stabbed Katie, and in each account, she had two accomplices that she'd named. Police interviewed both of these names several times, but they provided alibis for each other, and were as a result eliminated from the inquiry. No further charges have to date been raised against anybody else for the murder of Katie Ratcliffe. Despite Carr's various conflicting accounts, police were confident she was guilty. She had confessed all, had cooperated in making a reconstruction, and the wealth of self-penned evidence they would be able to introduce as evidence at her trial, wow, it was like a slam dunk for any prosecution, and it was thought a formality that she would issue a guilty plea. She'd even written in a letter to police shortly following her arrest. I'm sorry for all this. I'll spare you a trial by pleading guilty. That's the least I can do. However, a month after being charged, 
Kara had retracted all of these confessions and denied the murder, claiming that she was at home in bed at her mother's house at the time. Trial time then. Carr's trial began at Winchester Crown Court on Tuesday the 25th of February 1997, where she pleaded not guilty to the murder of Katie Ratcliffe. In what was to become a familiar court outfit of white roll neck sweater, black leather waistcoat and gold crucifix, the then 17-year-old dreadlocked Carr sat impassive in the dock as over the four-week trial, the wealth of evidence against her was presented to the jury of seven men and five women. In his opening address to the court, prosecuting counsel Stuart Jones QC said, In the early part of 1996, police interviewed this young woman in the dock, who proceeded in a series of interviews to admit that it was she who stabbed Katie to death. It must have been, and it is a cliche, but it does fit, some sort of frenzied attack. Her body had been dragged after death, but there was no evidence of sexual assault by a man. The murder of a young girl in such circumstances gave rise to an enormous police investigation and enormous publicity. But nobody was charged, and the identity of Katie's killer remained a mystery for about three and a half years. It is the appalling truth that this young girl, only twelve and a half at the time, did in fact kill Katie Ratcliffe, was haunted by it since, or alternatively, has exulted about it, even going so far as to mention sexual pleasure she had gained from it at the time. Her mother, the court heard, would give evidence that her daughter was at home in Camberley at the time of the murder. Mr Jones said, This alibi is worthless fiction, not worth the paper it's written on. He told the court that Carr had given details of the attack and of the horrific wounds inflicted on Katie, which only the killer could know, saying, These details were never published. They can't have come from her imagination. She can't have made it up and got it so horribly, uncannily correct. It's as awful and as true as that. Now, the main crux of evidence against Carr were her own words and writings. There were no eyewitness reports, no forensic evidence, and no murder weapon to bring to the table. Plus, as I said, she'd retracted her confessions to Katie's murder a month after the murder charges were brought against her. But by that time, police had seized a wealth of written evidence that Carr could scarcely deny, for they were her own handwritten diaries and journals, kept over the years since the murder, and several extracts from which were read out to the court. Extracts that showed just what a defining moment the murder of Katie Ratcliffe had been in Sharon Carr's life. She is constantly preoccupied with the whole question of Katie, as all these writings will demonstrate. You will hear extracts on the theme of Katie's death, this girl's part in it and her feelings about it. You will probably find that she is an intelligent girl, it is good handwriting and she expresses herself well. The preoccupation has a twin theme. The death haunts her, but she also appears to rejoice in what she's done, Mr Jones told the court. Now, Carr's diary entries, though are somewhat rambling, do make for disturbing reading, and when I reproduce what the court heard, I don't sanitise whatsoever. I think it's important to see the kind of mindset we're dealing with here. 
She was at the time a massive fan of US rapper Scarface, and in homage to him, Carr refers to herself in a play on her own name as Scar consistently through them. Several of the entries are written in rhyme also, as though she's trying to emulate being a lyricist, and interspersed with more common entries that you'd expect from a teenage girl, such as I hate maths or can't wait for the holidays, with chilling drawings of knives, bodies, graves, that type of stuff, coupled with several referring to Katie's murder, who she often referred to as Kilo Romeo. I could be here all day denoting Carr's diary, but instead I present a selection of which select entries from her 1994 to 1996 diaries that were presented to the court and that read as follows. 1994, a June entry is headed Katie on tour from 1992. It continues, I am a killer. Killing is my business and business is good. I swear I was born to be a murderer since I left the nutsack of my father. Every night I see the devil in my dreams, sometimes even in my mirror, but I realise it was just me and my heart of terror. I'm living every day with nightmares of what I did. This will haunt me day in, day out. The fear in her eyes turned me on. I hope she enjoyed every second of her ordeal. Killing for me is a mass turn on and it just makes me so high, I never want to come down. 1995, January the 13th. Remember Katie Ratcliffe? Oh God, she really did get me going, so hot. Pity really, I think about her and my head is spinning, but against the cops, I'm winning. March the 7th. I bet she's all bone and maggots by now. She shouldn't have tested me. I believe in pain as a sublimination of the ego on the physical body, the resurrection of the animal. That's why she had to be killed. May the 15th. If only I could kill you again, I promise I would make you suffer more this time, you fucking slag. Your terrified screams turned me on. June 7th, the third anniversary of Katie's death. Killed K.R. The death by knife wounds and sex go together. They both take you, and all women should be taken. Now your time has arrived for your final test. I see the fear in your eyes, and I hear your final breath. How much longer will it be until it's all done? The dark and the peace settles together as one. July the 26th. Katie, your memory is gone, slag. Last night it occurred to me that killing her did me good. I know what I'm capable of, and we'll do it again. December the 7th. Two and a half years today, I put that slag in the ground. Keep smiling. I enjoyed putting the knife up her. It made me feel powerful. I needed to overcome her serenity and security, but she needed to be raped. Now, Prosecutor Stuart Jones said, It was actually three and a half years, but it was a very significant entry. 10th of April 1996. I told her I had a knife, but she didn't react. My confusion gives way to anger. Damn you, and I tell her in a hissing, violent whisper. I bring the knife into her chest. Her eyes are closing. She's pleading with me, so I bring the knife to her again and again. I don't want to hurt her, but I need to do violence to her, and that's far more powerful than lust. 
I need to overcome her beauty, her serenity, her security. There, I see her face when she died. I know she feels her life being slowly drawn from her, and I hear her gasp. I guess she was trying to breathe. The air stops in the back of her throat. I know all her life her breathing has worked, but it doesn't now, and I am joyful. In April 1996, the month before she was charged, Carr wrote, I'm not like one of these pretty girls who breaks down due to a guilty conscience. Through six and a half years of causing people grief, I still haven't found one. Carr had even written the month after being charged with Katie's murder. Respect to Katie Ratcliffe, four years today. Now the only words I could muster really here were fucking hell, eh? And this is just a choice selection of them too. Now, it was by no means purely Carr's diary entries that the court heard, for extracts from letters Carr had written to friends whilst incarcerated were also read out, as well as transcripts of telephone conversations with friends and family that she'd had, all whilst on remand awaiting trial for Katie's murder, and all which mentioned what Carr had then been charged with after confessing to, and which read as follows. Transcript of call between Carr and her mother. Mother, did you really do it? Car, yeah, but it was ages ago, Ma. Mother, did you do it? Car, I was involved, yeah. Mother, what exactly did you tell the police? Car, nothing, because I said I wasn't going to talk to them. Mother, yeah, but what did you tell the prison warder? Car, nothing, we were just talking about it, right? Mother, you didn't, didn't stab her or nothing? Car, well, yeah. Mother, You'll get in fucking trouble. Car. But I ain't telling them about that, ma. I'm not going to say anything about it. Transcript of a call with a former boyfriend. Boyfriend. What murder is it supposed to be then? Car. There was just this bird, you know. No, it's just this bird from dead ages ago. Just picked up this girl one night and ended up dead, to cut a long story short. This was 1992. We didn't really worry about it or talk about it. Then boom. All of a sudden, it starts again. I took the black one, the stained stiletto knife. I took it up and hid it. This is the only evidence they've got yet. So they asked, well, where's the knife? And I said, it's at my friend's house. That's the only thing they've got on me. Without that, they've got jack shit, so I'm not really that worried. I've got enough grief as it is for my family. My brother's not talking to me. My mother's on the verge of killing me. And as for my dad... Geez, I don't even think he knows I exist anymore. Transcript of a phone call to a female friend. Friend, did you do it? Car, yeah, of course. Little bad girl, innit? I spoke to my mum. I told her what happened. Mum says if you talk to the police, she'll disown me. You see what I mean? I'm in a lot of shit here if they get me with this. When they come and see you, right? Say to them, she told me about it once. And she just said this girl got stabbed up and she put the knife in her up there and that's all you need to say. Friend, up where? Car, where do you think? Friend, no. Car, yes. Friend, you done that? Car, yes. Friend, there? Car, yes. Letter to a friend called Caroline. I was cruising with my homies and I saw a bitch standing in the corner. I showed her my thing and told her to play it cool. 
but the bitch wanted to be a hero and I did it. I'm not sorry, but I had to do it. Now, as I lay in my bed and I can't sleep, I'm in too deep. I had to kill her, but now I'm no longer a hunter, but the hunted. When I'm attacking someone, their eyes glaze. It's a turn on. Some people may think it's sick, but believe me, you might as well feel the pleasures of life before the pain. There was then a sketch of a knife before the letter continued. Killing just makes me so high, I don't want to come down. I've decided that I'm one that's untouchable, and not one of those pussy girls who breaks down and confesses everything. Annette Sinney, the prison officer that Carr had confessed to, told Winchester Crown Court that she'd received a letter from Carr which said, I would do anything for you, I really would. I think of ways I could win your heart, but I'm so confused. There's so much I need to say that I'm afraid it will end our friendship. Annette told the court that when she next saw Carr following receiving this letter, she had then made her chilling confession. She said to me, I've murdered someone, just like that. I remember it like it was yesterday. She was matter-of-fact and jokey. She was blasé with no remorse. Probation officer Sarah Bryden also appeared as a witness and told the court that early the previous year, Carr had admitted to her in a series of repeated confessions that she had murdered Katie. Sarah told the court. She said she had had sexual contact with Katie. She said that after she'd stabbed her, she touched her genitals. She told me, I wanted to cut her to pieces. Sex, blood and violence are interconnected. Two were good, but three, better. So, the question the court was left with was, were these the fantasies of a deeply disturbed mind, as the defence claimed? Or, as the Crown held, were they the grim memories of an evil and precocious schoolgirl who gloried in what she'd done? The defence had offered no evidence whatsoever, relying solely on defending counsel Susan Matthews QC's closing speech, in which she described, I say to you that the defendant is a magpie, someone who takes from other sources, internalising them and using them for her own purposes. The fact she's like a magpie with her writings goes hand in hand with a false confession she's made in respect to this murder. She's told it as her own to anyone who would listen to it. The defence say that this false confession trail was attention-seeking, made to make her the centre of attention. The jury, however, had no doubt whatsoever. On the 22nd day of the trial, Tuesday the 25th of March 1997, Sharon Carr was convicted unanimously of the murder of Katie Ratcliffe after the jury of seven men and five women had deliberated for six and a half hours over a two-day period. When the verdict was announced, Carr listened in apparent disbelief then slumped forward with her head in her hands. Katie's shattered family, meanwhile, the strain of dealing with the death had led to her parents divorcing some years before, sat in tears at the verdict, though Katie's father Joseph did raise his arms in triumph and relief. Ordering Carr to be detained indefinitely, Mr Justice Scott Baker told her, The evidence suggests you were not alone when you stabbed Katie Ratcliffe to death. Who the others were and what part they played remains unclear. 
What is clear is that you had a sexual motive. That is apparent both from the brutal manner in which you mutilated her body and the chilling entries in your diary recording what you'd done. Killing, as you put it, turns you on. You are an extremely dangerous young woman. Soon having regained her composure, a smiling car then swaggered from the dock to begin a sentence. Following the verdict, Detective Chief Inspector John James said, There is no satisfactory explanation. I could say she's mad, bad or evil, but she is simply someone who seems to be beyond all our experience and expectation of what a murderer is like. Katie's dad Joseph, meanwhile, said, I hope she rots in hell. She should have been hanged. We're a grieving family and will continue to grieve for the rest of our lives. Although she was initially incarcerated within the prison system, Charon Carr proved extremely difficult to manage and attacked other prisoners and staff on several occasions, leading to several transfers between prisons. She was eventually sectioned under the Mental Health Act in 1983 and transferred to Broadmoor Hospital on the 16th of June 1998, where she was assessed as suffering from schizoaffective disorder. When symptoms of schizophrenia, delusions, paranoia and hallucinations join with madness and depression. In June 2001, Carr made the headlines once again when it was reported that she was planning to marry fellow patient Robbie Lane, who, at 17 years old, had stabbed and battered his mother in a fit of jealousy, believing she favoured his sister, before gouging at her eyes with the handle of a carpet sweeper. He'd been in Broadmoor since 1996, but it was 1999 when he met Carr when they bumped into each other during a recreation period at the hospital and soon struck up a friendship. This developed into a relationship where they met regularly in unsegregated areas, though they were held on separate wards, Carr being on Harrogate Ward while Lane was on Woodstock Ward. After nine months together, Carr had accepted Lane's proposal and he would go around boasting that he was very excited because he was going to be marrying Carr. They organised a 20-minute marriage ceremony to be attended by several other patients who'd become close friends of the couple, as well as family members and relatives, though the couple would not have been able to consummate the marriage. Katie's father Joe, when the news was broken, said, At the time, I said Carr should hang, and I stand by that. It's no kind of punishment. She took my little girl from me, and now she's allowed to get married, to have a life. This is not justice, it's an absolute disgrace. However, it transpired that when the couple had read a newspaper report about their planned wedding, but one that contained details of their crimes, so shocked were they about what the other had done, they split up immediately, and the wedding was off for good. An unnamed Broadmoor source said, they both stormed out of a room after seeing the article, apparently disgusted by the ferocity of each other's murder. The wedding plans were thrown in the bin after Sharon read that Lane had gouged his mother's eyes out, and it seems Lane was pretty disgusted by the sadistic murder carried out by his bride-to-be. They won't even talk to each other now. It's quite amazing that two convicted murderers who fell in love behind bars could be revolted by one another.
the rings, which Stafford collected from Argos for them, have been sent back. Yeah, you should maybe get to know who you're marrying, eh, before you agree to. Word of advice there, married at first sight. I think that I would rather watch myself being bank frauded online in real time than that. And that's actually a line that I have just, as I write this, commented in a response to something from my good friend Mike from Murder Mile. Now, Sharon Carr's minimum tariff was set at 14 years in 1999, but upon a review of it on the 10th of December 2003 by the Lord Chief Justice Lord Wolfe, it was now recommended that the minimum tariff be reduced to 12 years, though this not meaning Carr would automatically be released at this point. In March 2009, Carr was up for release on license for the first time, though this was strongly opposed by several at the forefront of whom were Katie's family. Katie's mother Helen said at the time, We were horrified when her sentence was reduced. We just couldn't believe it. The whole family was flabbergasted. But life doesn't mean life anymore, unfortunately. The fact that she's now eligible for parole brings it all back up to the surface and forces us to think about it again. I don't feel she should ever be let out because she's a psychopath. She's far too dangerous. She didn't show any remorse at the trial. The family are really concerned she could be out in the street and this could happen to someone else. Helen then went on to describe the life sentence that Carr had left Katie's loved ones with, saying, It's just like myself and my family is serving the sentence. Not a day goes by when you don't think about it. You just think, why her? Katie was very trusting. She often used to say to me that I worried too much. She was just a normal, jolly girl. It's not natural for your children to die before you. It's a hard thing to come to terms with. I don't think there will ever be a time when it's behind me. I'll carry it to the grave. As I'm sure that Helen, Joseph, Joanne, Katie's friends and loved ones, of course they'll never forget either. How could you even? In March 2020, Carr lost a legal fight to have prison restrictions imposed on her eased. She'd launched a legal challenge against the restricted prisoner status, saying it was approved at a private meeting that she had, should have been allowed to attend. But presiding Mr Justice Julian Knowles, in his judgement, heard Carr tended to form intense relationships with females that turned into violent fantasies when thwarted. He subsequently denied Carr permission to seek a judicial review, ruling that the public would be at risk if Carr was ever moved to softer surroundings. What had ultimately derailed her case was evidence given to the hearing that she'd fantasised about murdering another inmate, fantasies that she'd shared with others. Mr Justice Knowles wrote, Carr had disclosed thoughts of wanting to murder another resident by splitting her head open with a flask, and throwing her down the stairs to snap her neck. The ruling was welcomed by campaigner for justice, 65-year-old Lynn Baird, who said, Carr shouldn't ever have the opportunity to even smell freedom. I don't doubt for a second that she would kill again if she had the means. The best thing to do would be to throw away the key, release this psycho, and she will kill again. I couldn't argue with that at all, could you? 
Now, though a 12-year minimum tariff has long since expired, Sharon Carr is believed today to remain in HMP Bronzefield, a female prison on the outskirts of Ashford in Middlesex. Given her unstable condition, she is unlikely to ever be released and is likely to remain there or in another secure facility for the remainder of her life. Sharon Carr is without a doubt one of the most chilling killers I have come across since I began as a crime writer and researcher, for to be possessed with that level of evil, such hate and such a desire and consummation to kill, such a disturbed personality, at age just 12, if that isn't terrifying, then I don't know what is. To commit such a brutal and frenzied murder is something else, anyway, it's horror beyond belief, isn't it? But at such a young age, when other children of the same age are tucked up in bed at home, and still don't really have that maturity or street smarts, it makes Carr unique like no one else I've come across before. The appalling and horrific history we've already heard of Carr's, her foul and shocking cruelty to animals, her disturbing behaviour, and the esteem that her older peers held her in, is already the signs of pure evil and a severely disturbed individual. And the only thing that can be said fortunately about the entire case is that thankfully, Carr was taken off the streets at the age she was and caged indefinitely, now having practically no chance of ever being released due to a deteriorated mental state. The chances are that Katie is likely to have been the only person Carr has ever killed. Yes, she would likely have killed Anne-Marie had she not been disturbed, but Katie's will have been the only murder Carr has committed. So prolific was she at mentioning Katie's murder in her writings and her diaries, that had she'd had any other victims, there would have been mention of these within. You have to understand, horrifically, this to Carr was the greatest accomplishment she had made in her life. It was a defining moment, and even years later, she was reliving it, salivating over every detail of it. She wouldn't have been able to resist writing about anyone else she'd attacked or killed, so this does remain her only killing. I say that, but I do add, to date that is, for I don't believe for a second that Sharon Carr is any less dangerous today, having spent years locked away serving a life sentence, than she was when she was just 12 years old. If anything, I imagine that dangerous heightened. I mean, We've already heard of her plans to murder a fellow inmate or patient by pushing them down some steel steps, specifically to crack open their head. I can't escape the feeling that this is a time bomb just waiting to go off once again. I mean, what does she have to lose? Nothing. And to gain? Well, a chance to recapture that feeling of power, some dreadful act that to her will perhaps equal the greatest thing to her that she's ever done butcher a young woman walking home, an act that while she thrilled over it each time she thought of it, that had destroyed a family irreparably and took away from so many people who loved her, the young woman with the world at her feet. There is simply no place in society for so disturbed a creature as Carr, and I must stress also that I believe there is at least one other person, most likely two, that should have faced charges connected with Katie's death also and that I hope the guilt of not coming forward and living with what they either did or at least knew about weighs heavily on them each day. I hope each day is a struggle.
Aside from all of that though, I ask you to remember first and foremost from this tale, Katie and her family. Primarily remember the girl who never got to make her way in the world, and the parents who lost so much from their lives as a result, and not the sensationalist view of a 12 year old killer. Remember Katie first and foremost, before anything else. I would love as always hearing your thoughts and feedback on the tale of Sharon Carr, the daughter of the devil, which you can do in the thread that's now up in the show's Facebook discussion group, which if you aren't a member of, then please get yourself into, or through any of the show's social media links, you know me, I'm happy to chat wherever. It's slight break time for the show for a week or so right now, but when I come back, we're launching into this series arc. It's something I need to get my head around also and I'm sure you'll come to realise what I mean when you hear it. With that then, I shall wrap things up for this time around, so I thank you so kindly for joining me and the pigs today, and all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Perhaps I'll even see some of you in London on the 11th also. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.